Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain my opportunity to leave the politics I cover on the on the TV world and uh, here in the podcast radio world and WGN Radio's site, we get to talk about other kinds of entertainment things. And this one's great. Um, I am going to be talking to the guy. Did you did you know there was a guy who actually started and created the International Chicago Film Festival? I mean, I've kind of lived with it my whole life. It never occurred to me somebody started it uh, or how that happened. So we're going to get into that. And what's wonderful about it is my guest, Michael Kutza, is the author of a new book called Starstruck, How I Magically Transformed Chicago into Hollywood for More Than 50 Years. Michael, hold the book up. My green screen doesn't allow me to do that. So there's the book. I have it too. I have read it. What I love about the book is there's photographs, historical photographs in there through the years, but it's it's like it's you talking. You put details. I have to ask you, a lot of the details you put, if the celebrities were alive, might not be happy. So did you oh, have to say, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. When, when I'm with them, they're like normal people. <laughs> Regular people, unless unless they don't want the public to know that they're just have the same needs and urges as everybody else, you know. Well, I guess that's it. When we think of people like you know, we won't, we're not going to swear on her anything, but I think of Shelley Winters. Just some of the stories that you tell in the book, I got such a kick out of them. Um, but again, you're right. You have to remember they're human beings just doing what human beings do. Well, I mean, Shelley Winters. I'll be careful what I say, but okay. remember, Shelley Winters was married four or five times. So very important man, but she also was a sexaholic. So you know. So when I meet her and she's in Chicago, she basically says, you know, I'd like to have sex with that guy right <laughs> over there at that table. Can you arrange it? And I said, no, but I'll call the owner of the restaurant. <laughs> and I think in that story, I think you even said you're not sure how it ended. Is that right? I, I'm not going to say. Read um, the book. <laughs> I did. Because <laughs> there are so many wonderful stories where sometimes you will say, oh, I'm not sure how that story ends or whatever. But I, I know you've been doing a lot of publicity for the book. And so one of the things that we hear often from you, but it's still worth talking about for a moment, when you were a kid, your parents were doctors and the thought was you were going to be a doctor. And somehow you got your dad to fund this little, little other venture that you wanted to get into. It's not just my father, my mother, my father, my aunt, my uncle. Everybody was a doctor. I think my dog was studying to be a doctor. Honest to God. <laughs> I'm from the west side in the Austin area. And um, yeah, D dad was the head of uh, St. Mary's Hospital. And my mother was in uh, Mother Cabrini Hospital. And interesting uh, side note, dad was a surgeon at uh, St. Mary's. And Robin Williams was born at St. Mary's Hospital, even though he lived in Lake Forest. He, he was born in St. Mary's. Not interesting trivia for you today. Yeah. And, and of course, he's one of the ones that gets honored. He's in the book with photos. But of course, what I didn't know about, what I haven't heard you talk about is, and maybe I'm taking leaps I, I shouldn't take, but it seems as though one of the places that your love of movie stars gets created is a result of, I'm going to be blunt, your grandmother in a casket. <laughs> in in uh in, in your uh i think in your living room which sent you to the For basement. seven seven days paul <laughs> and we and by the way we get a picture of her in the casket in the book well because it so traumatized me 
you know, it's not fair to a kid. I was probably five years old and Italian family and Polish family. Father was Polish, mother was Italian. So I'm, I'm prone to be part of the Italian family. So I was raised by my grandmother, slept in the same room. And then one day she wasn't there. <laughs> they didn't tell me nothing. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, she was in the living room for seven days in that box. And it scared the hell out of me because by then I was going to see movies. I'd go see neighborhood, the neighborhood theater. I'd go see horror movies and science fiction and musical learning. So I knew for seven days, I knew something. She's, she's not really dead. She's there. It was just, it traumatized me. Yes. So I had to put it in the book because it really affected me a lot. But it, but it serves a purpose. And now I'm going to fast forward a bit. Let's get you a little more into adulthood <laughs> because I want to bring up somebody who was a good friend of yours. I, I knew him and his wife, not terribly well, but I knew them. And that's Irvin S.E. Cup's in it. But you, you bring Cup into the book fairly early on. And in many ways, a Cup is a, is a, a connection between you and a lot of people. Cup is a great, great. Uh, so for those of you who don't remember Cup, Cup is sort of like a Walter Winchell for Chicago, but a nice, a nicer version. He wasn't too angry uh crazed political but he he covered the arts and everything and cup became a mentor of mine and he said if you really want to start this this film festival thing i have a person for you to meet and she's she's a widow she's retired from the movie business and i will introduce you to someone named colleen moore hargrave now i had no idea who that was and he said i'll set up a, a luncheon with with her now colleen moore was a famous silent film star in, in the 20s. And actually in 1927, she was the highest paid actress in Hollywood. And she was only 18 years old. And she introduced the term, the flapper. She was the first flapper with the, the hair, it was like sort of like a page boy bang thing. And uh, I met her for lunch at her house. And uh, she took an instant liking to me. And I said, will you help me with this project? And she said, well, there's one big problem. You're too young. No one's going to believe you. No one's going to trust you. You're, you're 22 years old. And she said, true story. From this day on, you're going to be 27 years old. She gave me a pair of glasses because she used to work with Harold Lloyd, another silent film star. She gave me this pair of um black horn room glasses and wear them and we'll work together do you still by the way do you still have that i mean i collect movie memorabilia stuff. i have a cane from charlie chaplin and if those were truly harold lloyd's glasses i'm guessing i'm sure they were but do you still have them i'm not giving them to you i didn't <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to come and take them <laughs> so colleen colleen introduced me to the world of stars because including Joan Crawford. Well, it's interesting and important to Chicago history. So Colleen lived at 1320 North state parkway. And I mentioned that because that address is across the street from the ambassador East hotel where the pump room is or was. So her movie friends would take the train. We didn't have jet planes, the train and probably the 20th century limited from New York to Chicago, you stay overnight at the Ambassador East, you have breakfast for lunch at the Pump Room, then you take the continuation train, I don't know what, Pacific or Santa Fe or something, to, to Hollywood for two days, 
but they would stop over and see Colleen, see how she's doing as retired from the business. So I would meet Myrna Loy for lunch one day there at the house or Lillian Gish. And then, of course, one day, yes, there was Joan Crawford. Joan was then an executive at Pepsi-Cola, so she was staying at the Ambassador East, and she came over to say hello. And that's where I, I would meet these people. And at that time, Colleen was – she was discovered by a, a famous director named King Vidor. Yeah. Oscar-winning, some wonderful silent films and sound films. Well, uh, Colleen was also having an affair with him. Now, remember, all these people are married to somebody else. So I don't ask those questions, but uh, Colleen had three or four husbands, and King was still married to his wife. So they're having this thing, and King, I said, well, we should honor King at the first film festival. And Colleen said, great idea. So it all it all evolved from friendship, meeting my second mother. She was like my second mother to me, Colleen Moore. And things happen for a reason. One of the one of the at some point in the book, you make the point that what you wanted the film festival to be was a sort of first time honor for new filmmakers early. Always in yes, to discover first and second time film directors because I was making movies then too, short films, and these festivals are a way to get you awards and get you uh, a notoriety for your next project. And I believe you should discover new. So I, I searched out new directors at all times. And in 67, one of the big ones was Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And Marty will still say, I owe, in fact, he was in town four weeks ago to be honored at the Economics Club uh, for 1,400 people at the Hilton Hotel on Michigan Avenue. And true story, the very first words out of his mouth as he's being interviewed by Katzenberg is, Chicago is very important to me because of Michael Kutza and the Chicago International Film Festival. I was blown away. I was sitting in the first row of this dinner. I said, wow, he still remembers. <laughs> and he told the story. He told the story of the film. He said, I had no money to come to the festival, but that's how it started. It was seen. And then that's where Roger Ebert reviewed it. He was brand new then. And this whole thing, my career started. The list is amazing of these people. Bill Friedkin was another one who you gave the early start to. At the very first festival, Bill Friedkin, the first festival, and Taylor Halford, who went on to do um, White Nights and Mary Helen Mirren, all these, and Oliver Stone, first film. And these people have, be, have become very loyal. So if they have a new project, they call me and they say, you know, we'd like to bring it back to Chicago, um, which just makes me feel pretty good. <laughs> and when you see it, because the thing is, when you bring them in at that time, Marty Scorsese, Bill Freakin, they weren't who we know them to be today. So no, they were they were just yeah no. So you were reading something beyond. And the other thing, kind of theme that I took from the book, uh, it, it, as it relates to the beginning of the festival, you made the comment that every film festival has humble roots. Now you look where you are today, and it's hard to to imagine the humble roots. But what did you mean by every film festival begins with humble roots? Well, first of all, Chicago, we were the only game. So you wanted to come to Chicago because th th there was no Sundance or Toronto or or Telluride, Tribeca and all that stuff. Chicago was it. And so when I would call up a someone that I admired in the business uh, as, a, as a young young film person, I wanted Chicago people to meet to meet these folks. And so if I called a studio and I said I'd like to have them, um, I don't know. The, the man who did all the science, all the special effects for King Kong. Mm -hmm. No one ever thought of asking that guy to be honored 
with all the magic he did way back in the 30s. And of course, then same with Ruby Keeler, Keeler, Busby Berkeley. Come on to Chicago. Humble roots. Well, uh, did I really say that? (laughs) Yeah, you did. Um, And the other thing people may not know, because, you know, when you hear this, I'm guessing people watching us right now are going, Chicago? I mean, no, this is supposed to be L.A. That's Hollywood. But can you explain a little bit about the power of SNA Studios that were here? Well, the beginning of Hollywood, in a sense, a form of it was out here and at the in Uptown at the uh, SNA Studio on Argyle Street. The studio is still there. Charlie Chaplin made one short film there, but but Gloria Swanson worked there as an actress, a comedy actress, by the way. Uh, Wallace Beery and and I don't think the Keystone Cops did anything there, but this is the beginning of Hollywood and and. We, uh, we actually, we used that studio to do our opening night gala for the first film festival, 500 people, and we honored King Vidor and Stanley Kramer is there and Betty Davis physically at the studio. Uh, and this was quite an exciting, exciting thing. Now, but like, like everything, Hollywood or Hollywood was growing and it had better weather. So the studios in New York were closing because the weather was terrible. Studio in Chicago. Even even Chaplin, when he made his first short film here, he said, I don't want to work here. It's, it's too cold. We need light. We need this. We need One film. He's gone to Hollywood. And that's the history of it. But we are. We were Hollywood on the lake. We really were the beginning. And, and Gloria right Swanson that- did get married on the back lot. <laughs> And I think I've got that. Wow. Yeah. And I think I've got this story right. But you wanted to bring Geraldine Chaplin in, Charlie Chaplin's daughter. And sure. that was a tough yes. thing to do. But you got her to SNA Studios and that kind of did the magic because she felt the vibes of all those stars. Yes. So I'm, I'm at uh, Geraldine Chaplin. He had eight children. Geraldine's the actress. And uh, she was in Dr. Zhivago and many, many mm-hmm. films. A sweet, wonderful young lady. Well, young lady. She's probably in her late 70s, maybe more. And we met, I was on a film jury in Havana, Cuba, I don't know, maybe um, five, six years ago. And we hit it off. And I said, you know, someday I'd love to have you come to Chicago and honor you with your short films of your career. And we'll do it at your father's film studio. We'll do an event around you, but it'll be in the famous Charlie Chaplin studio, which is what they call it now. And we did it. And she had a ball, but she was very freaked out. and. She she kept you know she she could be a little nutty but she said I really feel my father's presence here and and it's it's very spooky but uh, it's exciting. That, can we still get into? I've never been to the SNA. I mean, can one still tour it or get into it? It's a college now. It's been sold. Okay. Don't ask for the name because I didn't pay attention. It is okay. it's, it's a school. It's a school. And another well, even, name. Even when, when SNA closed, it became a. Uh, the Wilding Studios, where they made industrial films, that's a term that doesn't exist anymore, industrial films, made a lot of money with in, industrial films, you know, uh, promotional cool. movies to yeah. sell cars and things. How cool. How cool. And of course, another name that's legendary in Chicago when it comes to movies. I mean, I'm going back to some of this because people need to understand your tie to this history. But Roger Ebert, and you write in the book that you and Roger put each other on the map. He was an incredible supporter that is, of that you. That's absolutely, absolutely true. Roger's first, Roger just graduated um urbana college that's Illinois, where i went University of Illinois, urbana and his first as a journalist and his first job came to chicago for the chicago sun times and it was his job was to cover the chicago international film festival that was that was probably about 1967 
And Roger was not nobody. He was writing it. He, he loved the films and he s- discovered the Scorsese thing. I said, well, Roger, I'm working on a festival in Iran and in Venice because I also would advise people. Even, even at my age, I would advise them because they, they felt I had some knack of finding films and stars and things, even that back then. So I was working in Iran and then in Venice. And I said, Roger, would you like to come to an international film festival? He said, sure, I've never been to one. Took him to Iran and he, he was sitting, he met Claudette Colbert, and Cliff Robertson, and all these kind of people, which just got him hooked. Then I said, a couple of years later, I said, well, I'm, I'm programming Venice. And uh, would you like to come to Venice? You'd never been to Europe. And he came to Venice. And that from that point on, he's hooked. And yes, we became, he was very loyal to me and the festival for many, many, many years. And he was loyal to you in a very key way, but I'm going to do one other thing before I get to what I have in mind, because I need this piece. And that's Victor Skrebninsky. You know, Skreb, I don't know how... Skreb, Skreb, Skrebneski. Skrebneski. Now, I don't yes. know how big he was before you found him. He is the guy who developed all of the, or for years, the the uh, film festival posters, very sexy, right. very, yeah. Right, so right, 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 right. talk about that history a little bit, because it also ties into, you know, you talked before about people being human and people have various drives. Uh, when it came to the LGBTQ themes and others, the posters really spoke to that uh, in terms of- Well, that, that, now that came up because uh, even though I had a Chicago International Film Festival, I had no audience. Nobody really cared about these foreign films, and nobody cared about Bill Friedkin, or even the Scorsese. Nobody cared. So I had gone to Cannes to see films with Colleen and King Vidor. He was on a jury, and I was there looking for films for Chicago. And when I came back to Chicago, I realized what I was missing. So I would read about this Victor Skrebneski in the Chicago Tribune, because he made a little film. And... Uh, he was only famous because he did he did advertising, fashion advertising for a company called SD Lauder. That was his claim to fame. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so women knew all these beautiful ladies with the makeup and blah blah blah. So I've tried to get to visit him, but you're not allowed to get in the studio because they just shun, 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 they think you're a model and they throw you away. I said, No, I want to meet this guy. He said, Sorry, he's too busy. And it went on and on. I said, I got to meet him. I want to show his film. I said, okay, this little movie. I said, okay. And then one of the agents, one of his agents there, she said, I'd like to talk to you because you know all, suddenly I'm getting known in the newspaper. You know all these fancy socialites and all these people that might be very useful for Victor. And I said, yes, let's have lunch. And this little lady took me to the pump room again. Pump room is, sorry that it's gone. She said, what is it you want? of Mr. Skrebneski. I said, well, here's my problem. I come from Cannes. And yes, I've got all the great films and all this stuff, but all the people talk about in the newspaper are, are, are naked girls jumping in fountains. <laughs> Chicago has no sex appeal. And your guy, maybe you can fix that. So she says, I'll talk to Mr. Skrebneski and you will meet him. So I meet Victor, I don't know, weeks later. And I said, here's my problem. He said, give me a couple weeks. And that's when he comes up with our very first photo together of a of a model named her name is Paulette Lindbergh, naked, of course, soaking wet, holding on to our, our award. And and I ran as a full page in variety around the world, come to Chicago to get your award in this 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 outrageous photograph. And um, then I said, Well, I said, Well, let's move on. 
Then we did wet T-shirts with boys and girls, you know, very, very yeah. exciting things. And they became synonymous. And these posters would raise money so we could keep the festival going. But it gave us this sex appeal that made you want to come see what we're showing. So indirectly, you're still going to come in and see my foreign or Hungarian or French films. Right. But you're also coming because of something exciting. But yeah, I had to trick people to come see the foreign films. So, by the way, I have a book signed by Victor to Irvin S.E. Cup. I'll trade you for the Harold Lloyd glasses. You're not kidding. <laughs> oh, God. I'm trying. Well, anyway, let me put. So I said I wanted to do that piece before I got to something else, and that is to bring in Gene Siskel. Because one of the things that, you know, I don't know, maybe surprised me a little bit was that you got some hassle from Siskel over the emphasis of LGBTQ films. And it was Roger Ebert who said, you know, and of course these posters are out there and it was Ebert who told Gene to chill because it was just fine. I never got along with Gene Siskel. So if you really want me to start talking about Gene. Well, hey, <laughs> can't stop you. Well, you know, let's go back to something you probably don't know. In fact, I was doing a lecture with Michael Phillips the other night out in Highland Park. And he said, tell me about Gene. I said, I'd rather not talk about Gene because it's a sore spot. The film critic for the Chicago Tribune, name was Cliff Terry, a wonderful guy, intelligent, low-key. And he went off to fight in the military. And the Tribune said, don't worry. You do your job. Your job will always be there waiting for you. Of course, he came back from, I don't know if it was Vietnam or Korea, whatever. He came back. Sorry, your job. We've given it to this sports guy, and he's gonna. He is now the film critic. I said, and of course, that's not fair. And just screwed him over, and it was Gene Siskel. And uh, then Gene was part of the Roger thing, and then Gene would uh, was irritated that I was showing sort of controversial films, gay films. This film, <laughs> so Roger said. In fact, I think the great quote of Gene is, "All Michael shows is gay movies." And Roger said, well, well, Gene, it's a hundred feature films. Five of them happen to have themes that you find <laughs> questionable. And, and then that's over. And then 10 years later, suddenly Gene says, oh, because it became fashionable. Oh, these are wonderful. <laughs> how so times change. He how times change is right. And I realize in so many of the interviews you do, everybody wants to hear the star stories. I'm no different. I want to get into some of them. And the reason is because I want to encourage people to read the book because it is filled with, I kind of couldn't put them down because I love reading about stars and all that. And you just, you just, you give the dirt where it's due. You tell us what, what happened. Well, and I love well, that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I laid the book out like a movie. In fact, if you go to the table of contents, every chapter is a movie title. Yeah, you've got a star is born. Yeah, you literally right. Well, exactly. So West Side Story is the first the first title. That's because I was born on the West Side, and it goes into the detail. West Side Star is Born is the story of Colleen Moore, which was written about her life with her first husband, um, which is a fascinating story about her uh, and John McCormick. John McCormick created her uh, and made her very very successful on the screen. But just like in Star is Born, she became bigger and bigger and bigger, and he became less important. And he was an alcoholic. So he was trying to lose his job at the studio while she's becoming the head of the studio. And it became quite a problem for Colleen with a husband that basically wants to kill her. Well, you, you wrote in the book that A Star is Born, essentially, I don't know if it's formally based on that story, yes. but it is their she, story. There are, two, there are two films based on her life. And the first one is called What Price Hollywood, which is also like Stars Born. And then the same author wrote Stars Born on Colleen's life. 
because it is John McCormick who at the Oscars, you know, slaps her and all that and does walk into the ocean to commit suicide at the end. John did that. Wow. But he was saved by his next door neighbor, another silent film star. It was a tragic, tragic ending for Colleen <laughs> to get out of that marriage. Because every time she said, I've got to divorce you because I can't keep putting you in rehab and you just come out worse than ever and you're, you're suicidal alcoholic, I can't, you're, destro you're destroying me, but then you created me. It's a, it's a catch 22 for her. It was, it was really quite awkward. And when he tried to kill her the second time, she said, That's it. That's and then it. she did she did divorce and then she married again. I mean, your your life has been so amazing. And I, let's tell some of the stories, but one other question. But, but, but when you when you yeah. have someone like her around to tell you these things, it was all so new to me, you know, Hollywood at that that time and 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 all. Yeah. But the thing anyway. is, Michael, you you have guts. And you have to be a marketing genius because, I mean, if I wanted to start a film festival because I love movies and I love stars, I don't think I'm going anywhere with it. So it's not just your love for movies. You have you reach out to anybody that you, I mean, that's clear in the book. It didn't, there was no stopping you for who you want, Sophia Laura. It really didn't matter. You were going to reach out. They're all great stories, but you also have, you're a marketing genius because you knew the, the posters from Victor, bringing these people in like Scorsese before anybody knew them. You knew what it took to get where you are today, I think. Well, I learned along the way, because basically, I'm a shy guy. Even though Faye Dunaway could never remember my name, and she'd been in office, she, she'd call me Michael Hutzpah because she couldn't remember Kutza, and I said, I'll accept that. I like, I mean, actually, that's not, a, that's not a bad name. That's not like bad. That. I can't spell Hutzpah, but I like it. I like the I'll idea. Help I'll tell you how to spell it if you give me the Harold Boy glasses. <laughs> Uh, listen, one of my favorite stories, I, you know, look, I do go back a long way with you and 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 Lauren Bacall, uh, maybe a lot of people know she was married to Humphrey Bogart, whatever, but your Lauren Bacall story with Bill Curtis introducing, now Bill, of course, is still around, Lauren's not, but oh, did she get mad, why? Well, first of all, when she arrived, she wasn't happy because no one at the hotel, we're checking into the Hilton up on the penthouse or that amazing, no one knew who she was. So she was already very angry. The staff didn't know she was the maids, the this, the that. No one spoke English, so they didn't know she was a star. And she said, I don't like it here. Get me out of here. Move me. As so I called the management, and I said, oh, Bob, we got to do something. Well, we'll get another staff, and another this. We'll tell them. They did it. They calmed her down. Sent flowers, sent champagne. Had people speak English that know she was somebody. Fine. We get her to the gala. We did a bit fundraising gala around her. We did it at McCormick Place in the ballroom there. It was quite spectacular. And uh, Bill Curtis was the host. He's usually the host of our galas. And he could have been better. He was on stage, and, and she's in, right there in the first row at Full House, about 500 people or so. And and Bill starts out, we've got to welcome Miss Bacall and wish her happy birthday on her 75th birthday. <laughs> first of all, you don't do that to a woman at 75 and she's right there and she just yells out she says you're dead <laughs> and from that point on the interview was very cold and icy with bill and her other people came up and talked we brought in enough friends of hers from the years from new york and this yeah, and that. She, you said she calmed down a little bit she calmed down a little bit 
And then there's a dinner afterward, and the dinner, the music was bothering her. She had a problem with hearing, and she, people clawing at her, you know, wanting her autographs. And it started to really annoy her. She was not happy. Oh. So she says, get, I said, get me out of here. I said, I've only heard get me out of here four times from other people. And I said, you have to shake hands, and do. I'll do what I have to do, but get me out of here. So she does what she does. I said, let's get out to the limo. And <laughs> people are following her for autographs. And and she's, shall we say, she's rather homophobic, even though she's a star. And, and they went over. And she, she screams, she says, what do they think I am? Angela Lansbury, these hairdressers? Get rid of them. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. Now she was older. Well, you... um. Oh, oh yes. Early- and she, she'd say to Bill, well, you know, I am opening on... Broadway next week at a play, of course, unless I'm too old, Bill. Yes, that's in the book, too. I loved it. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, Shirley McLean, I love demanding the private 727 and then needed to make a phone call to talk to her dog. Shirley's got a little stuff going on. She, you know. When she, when she, that was seven, it was a 727. Yes, all by herself sitting in that big plane. Um, when she landed at O'Hare, no, no, at, at Midway, because it's private. Um, the first thing she went to do was to phone home and talk to the dog. Now, remember those days she was into her Clara yeah, the, whole, the psychic and, thing, yeah. Her right, life yeah. did. Uh, I saw. I didn't. I didn't question it. I don't know that the dog had to say, but I was sitting I, there. I've seen dog psychic, so I'm not going to question her. But I just thought it was interesting, and, <laughs> and and I also love this. Look, I'm I'm a Tom Cruise fanatic, and if you have his cell phone, I'd like it, please. Um, but but you honored him as actor of the decade. I love the surprise you did for Spielberg. I've heard some things about Spielberg that maybe sometimes he might be difficult to work with, but um, I know that that you his folks were basically telling you no surprises, don't. But you got him, and he loved it. Yes, they work so much. It's hard to to find. Can you come to Chicago? His his Marvin Levy, his 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 um, uh, publicist and yeah. mentor, who's been with him over forty years. Who every detail of those films he will okay. It's like a father figure. He okay, with with Stephen. I said Marvin, I'll, I'll I'll arrange the event whenever he's available. I'll make a summer gala, uh, spring, winter. I don't care. Well, he's doing three films right now. I said, you let me know what year and when we can squeeze him in, and I'll, I'll do something he'll never forget. It'll be it'll be a great honor because no one's really honored him. You know, he hadn't gotten an Oscar, right? And uh, so he said, "Well, we, we can do a summer thing." He's finishing that film, producing another, but he has to be home for his daughter's equestrian. Uh, I don't know, whatever you do with horses and Competition, maybe. Yes, exactly. So I said, okay, well, we're good. And we did. And the event was remarkable. I've got 800 people at the Sheraton. I got um, Roy Scheider. I got some from Jaws. Each each film had a reason. So Roy Scheider was there, who was dying of cancer at that time, but he was sick, but he he came to do it. He was wonderful. I got this Paul Sorino from University of Chicago, who's the expert on all the dinosaurs. He just passed away. About, yeah. To talk about Jurassic Park, you know, uh-huh. and the reality of this stuff. And then I went, I went to the um, Holocaust Museum and found an Auschwitz survivor woman who will talk all about because Schindler's List was going to win a prize and all this. And she was, she was a heartbreaker, and he was in awe. And then comes time to present him with the award. So I usually do the usual speech at the podium. The statue is always in the podium, so everyone's used. The, the audience knows the routine. I give a speech and I, I reach out of the podium to get the statue. 
but it wasn't there. So my staff, the audience, no one knew what I was up to. And I didn't, couldn't share a word of it because it was all Hush nobody house. knew. Right. I only I sent an assistant. I said, go to Midway Airport. You're going to pick up somebody. You're going to pick up Tom Hanks. Don't worry about it. Don't even, it's not important. Just go there and pick up the person. So backstage, I have no award. And Stephen is standing there like, what to do? And he's laughing and joking. And, and then from backstage comes Tom Cruise with the award. And it was a, a great love. In, and, and the reason I wanted to have Tom, they had just finished two films together. Uh, War of the Worlds and Minority Report, I think. Yep. It's a re remarkable film, which is so today of what we're going through with uh, identity. Right. Know. Well, so there's reasons for all that. And, and by the way, I have Tom's gloves for Minority Report, so I'll trade those for the Harold Lloyd glasses. You're but anyway. Kidding. So so, so the reason I wanted Tom is they finished the two films. Stephen was very angry with him because he had gone on Oprah, jumping like a fool on a sofa and in love with this girl, only talking about Scientology. This is really upsetting Stephen in the two films. So I thought maybe this could help repair the situation. Yeah. And it did. It did. It's an amazing, it, it's an amazing story. And we're about out of time, Michael. Uh, and so I don't want to get cut off while, before I mention the book again, but th these stories, the book is filled with them. Sally mean, Field. You, and, mean, and you mean this book? That book starstruck <laughs> Sally Field and Spiel and, and Charlton Heston, who was from Evanston. I mean, there's nobody you haven't uh, dealt with, but one very quick question. And then I encourage everybody to get the, the book starstruck, but is Chicago the movie hub it is today as the f festival carries on for years to come that it was in the past? Has Hollywood taken over? Are we still number one. You asked a lot of things right there. First of all, film festivals, they're having trouble just to come back to get people back to the movies, remember? Right. Uh, to get to get to get butts in the seat is quite complicated because we're so spoiled with Netflix and HBO and all the rest. We're happy staying home. But I think there'll always be a space for things like the film festival. This because it's a niche audience. Where else will you ever see these offbeat new directors? They're they're, they're different. There's there a niche. There's a niche for that. Yeah. And Michael, I'm only stepping in because I'm going to lose you. So I don't want to do that. The book is Starstruck. Michael Kutza, a Chicago treasure. Come back again. Let's talk more about it. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much. Congratulations on an incredible work. It's wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.